Hello, I'm David Moskrow. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Since the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, observers have been talking about the quote-unquote egalitarian nature of the virus. COVID-19 doesn't discriminate, was a common refrain. But while the virus itself may have common effects across populations, the pandemic and its consequences are far from shared equally. As with many public health challenges, the effects and costs of the pandemic are distributed unequally, with marginalized individuals and groups often asked to do the most while facing a higher likelihood of becoming ill. It may comfort us to say we're all in this together, but that isn't quite true, leaving us to ask, whose pandemic is this? My guest on this bonus episode of Open to Debate is Arjuman Siddiqui, Canada Research Chair in Population Health Equity and Associate Professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Let, let's start with context. So early in the pandemic, and, and still a little bit now, there was talk of it being egalitarian, of all of, it, of all of us being in this together. But the effects of the pandemic aren't being borne equally, and not all of our public health risks and outcomes are the same. So I'm wondering how COVID is affecting different populations and communities in different ways. Yeah, it's a great question and a great point. What we're learning is that the virus is systematically affecting some communities, some groups in our society more than others. And while there was this notion initially that um, it's egalitarian and that notion was uh, because we, we knew that you could get the virus from being in close proximity to someone who had it and being exposed to, um, uh, you know, the air they were breathing out and so on and so forth. They sneezed, et cetera. And that seems like a fairly egalitarian process. But even though the virus doesn't discriminate insofar as you're exposed to it, um, what ended up happening is what happens with almost every disease that we know of. And that is that the risk for being in close proximity to someone with the virus, for being exposed to the virus, and for having the risk factors associated with being exposed and having the risk factors associated with a more severe course of disease were not egalitarian in any sense of that word. And so what we're learning is that just like for every other health outcome, people in our society who are uh, more economically and socially disadvantaged, who experience um, racism, who experience uh, poverty, who uh, don't have jobs that allow them, for instance, to social distance, are the ones who are most at risk. And so um, part of why this is happening is because our society is effectively structured to offload risk onto people who are who have very little power to do anything about risk. So, uh, you know, some people can stay home, they have the kinds of jobs and the autonomy and the income and the wealth to not worry about having to be home uh, and can do their jobs from home, can afford to have things delivered, uh, don't have family members who are working low-wage jobs. And so um, 
the odds of those people being exposed to the virus is really low. And moreover, um, the fact that we have structured society so that the people who are out there working, who are essential service workers, are the ones who are at risk for this disease, it's it's not accidental. It's sort of, um, it's a systematic structuring of risk and it comes up for COVID, but it also comes up irrespective of the disease and irrespective of the mechanisms that lead to disease. That's, I think, the really striking part is that this is a new disease, but the fact that even this new disease, even a disease that um, manifests itself by just someone breathing or sneezing on you, which arguably could happen to any of us, isn't happening to any of us. Um, it really is systematic. You mentioned work. I mean, is this the the primary driver? Is that you know you that you, you know you just if you can't work from home, then you're at greater risk. If if you have to be in because you're essential, you're at greater risk. Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned how that we sort of offloaded that risk structurally onto onto marginalized peoples, but but not com- I would say and not compensated them accordingly. Um, is it is it work primarily that that is driving this? Is is that the thing? Because I'm trying I'm trying to get to the essence of what's of what's really driving it. And my sort of gut and sense was, oh, it's the economy, it's the market. Um, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I'll tell you what I think is happening, but I think I should also preface this by saying we have very little direct data that allow us to say anything with any degree of empirical certainty. So unlike the US, where there's a fair bit of data on a variety of COVID risk factors, like what your occupation is, what your race is, what your income is, where you live, um, and there's data that are accessible to the masses, we, we just don't have that. And so we don't know very much about what's happening in Canada. Um, We can infer uh, based on a long history of understanding, for instance, how racial inequalities in health transpire, which again is primarily based on US data, um, and knowing essentially how our our political economy is structured. So let me tell you what I think is happening, and I think you're quite right that um, occupation is probably a primary culprit. So essentially, if you think about any disease, whether it's COVID or anything else, one way to think about how inequalities happen is that inequalities in the outcome are primarily a function of inequalities in the risk factors for the outcome or the mechanisms that lead to the outcome. So if you think about the sum total of things we know to be true so far about COVID, what are they? Well, they are that if you are exposed, you are more likely to have bad outcomes. As you say, what is a primary source that's differentiating people who are exposed from those who aren't? Well, a primary factor is your job. Whether or not you're an essential service worker or grocery clerk or et cetera, et cetera, 
and you're out there working while other people are home uh, isolated from the virus. So I think that's a very good uh, hypothesis that that's a big part of this. Another factor may be that, uh, you know, sort of it works in tandem with all of this, that because we live in fairly segregated neighborhoods um, and because, uh, uh, you know, there's such a, a link, a, a, a causal relationship between racism and the economic circumstances of uh, um, black, particularly black people in Canadian society uh, and indigenous people, you have a situation where people who are working these kinds of jobs and are low wage workers are more likely to be living in neighborhoods in apartment buildings that are densely populated, that aren't regulated by an elaborate condo board and a concierge that's monitoring elevator use and monitoring, you know, who's together in the laundry room and so on and so forth. So another risk factor might be, and again, I say might, because at this point we're just hypothesizing, um, the idea that you've got people with risk who are then going home and are around each other and around others to whom they can um, spread COVID. And that is by virtue of a concentration of uh, low-income workers, particularly um, uh, racialized workers um, in small geographic areas of the city and in, in small in, in neighborhoods and in apartment buildings and so on where they're all together. So that's another factor. The third factor I can think of um, is related to a story that was in the newspaper not long ago about a long-term care worker, uh, a black man who effectively what came, went to the emergency, did exactly what he was supposed to do uh, when he sensed symptoms and was turned away. And my recollection is he may have been turned away a couple of times and ultimately, uh, very sadly, he died of COVID because his symptoms were dismissed and he was told, you know, he doesn't need to be tested, et cetera. And so I am wondering, wondering essentially, uh, again, this is a, a hypothesis about whether racism in the healthcare system leads to some people being taken seriously and others not. And therefore, if you're turned away, especially in, in a time period before the current moment where we weren't being, you know, where testing was very limited. If you're being turned away and you are COVID positive, well, I mean, you're not isolating mm -hmm. and uh, away we go with more spread. So I think there are a variety of, of ways to think to sort of at least hypothesize about what's what might be the reason for racial inequalities in COVID. And they all have to do with inequalities in the mechanisms that lead to COVID. You, you've anticipated my, my second question. And, you know, you mentioned that we're stuck hypothesizing. And then I was, I was going to say, do we have the data we need to evaluate this? But obviously we don't. Yeah. And, and, it, I'm a little bit surprised that the United States does have it and we don't. I mean, I think if you were, were wondering, if you didn't know any better and you were a casual observer, you might think it was the opposite. And yet, 
uh, here we are. I mean, why don't we have that data? What what prevents this country from collecting that data and making it easily available? I know we have a long legacy of being pretty bad at this stuff when it comes to federal provincial data being easily uh, available for folks. But in this case, with public health data on something that is so extraordinarily important, why wouldn't we have that? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a very difficult one to answer because, again, I can't say anything with any degree of certainty. I'll tell you what we often hear is the official party line, <laughs> uh, and that is that um, Canada is very weary of uh, um, people's privacy uh, uh, rights, and they're very weary of people's privacy bring, being breached by um, releasing data and by, I guess, having it in the first place, but certainly by releasing it for people to readily analyze. And um, it's really, really remarkable that that's the only <laughs> kind of uh, <laughs> argument they still cling to, um, not because privacy is a completely un- uh, uh, you know, unrealistic concern, but because the safeguards that are in place are so extensive mm -hmm. and the occasions uh, um, at which privacy has been breached are, are tantamount to non-existent and the good that can come out of providing data and, and being able to an analyze it um, ha having the masses be able to analyze it um, is so valuable that it's really, really remarkable that we still are in this, you know, bury your head in the sand moment. So I think even though privacy is the official um, argument, it's, it's very unlikely that that is really the only story. I have a strong feeling that we prefer to have a society where we just don't document these things mm -hmm. so that you and I can sit here and say, well, it's a guess. Uh, it's a hypothesis. Uh, we think this is happening, but that there's no real way to establish empirical facts that then hold policymakers accountable for those facts. So I'm not saying that data actually spurs action on any regular basis and you point out the US and you can see like with all this great data it's not like it, it has always led to uh you know there's like no direct line between the data and and uh action on the other hand i think it's really important for any semblance of a modern society to know what the facts are about its society and for policymakers to have to say not only what they're doing, but what that's based in, what it's rooted in. And I don't think it's okay for us to leave open the potential that policymakers can create their own facts and say that they're acting based on facts because they're not held accountable by any independent source of facts. So in my opinion, it's important to collect the data, even if you told me it doesn't lead to action, because I do believe that we should make sure that people are very clear about the basis for their actions and that they should not be able to use facts or the lack of facts um, as a sort of way to make up their own stories about what's happening in Canadian society and what's not happening.
Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's stunning to me that, uh, I mean, you have governments increasingly saying that they care about evidence-based policymaking and then they don't have evidence. I mean, or they don't have data on which to, to base these decisions. I mean, I wonder if that will change b because of this moment. But I, I also am conscious of the fact that you've mentioned that this is paralleling COVID, the COVID pandemic is paralleling other past and, and presumably present public health issues. I mean, so, you know, is, is this sort of a, a typical, does it look typical? I mean, obviously the pandemic itself is extraordinary, but in terms of the distribution of risk and effects, is it typical to other public health challenges that we faced? Does it break down along the same lines, you think? It does. It does, um, by and large. Anyways, again, without the data to be able to say much um, in, in more concrete or specific terms, by and large, yes, it does. Um, and that's what's really remarkable. I mean, if you think about that, it means that diseases like cardiovascular disease that are dependent on whether you eat right, have stress in your life, exercise, um, so on and so forth, um, diseases like depression or suicide risk or other mental health issues that are about different stressors, they're about a host of things, um, and COVID that's about being near someone who can breathe on you are all patterned similarly. So I think that's why it really is about offloading risk onto the most marginalized people in society. So regardless of what that risk is, we seem to find a way to make sure that the richest folks are not exposed to the worst outcomes and that the poorest folks and the blackest folks are. So, I mean, we've known this for a long time as well. And, and if it's a pattern, it sounds like obviously it is a pattern. Mm -hmm. Have And we pay a lot of lip service to caring about this stuff. It gets seized by governments. It gets seized by corporations. It, it gets seized by thought leaders, all who want to pay lip service to doing better. But have we seen any structural changes that would, would mitigate those those effects being distributed inequitably? Because I'm, tr I'm trying to think of of what I've seen in the last you know, X number of years that would say, okay, we're getting to the root of the problem. And, and plainly, the problem has, has lots to do with the market and capitalism. Yes. Uh, it has to do with work. But I don't see any real deep structural changes that, that are, are meant to fix that. And I'm wondering if I'm missing anything. Um, without being too much of a wet blanket, <laughs> are you not what missing anything? I think it would be safe to say that the policies of the last several decades have exacerbated mm. the issue. So what we're finding in the data is that uh, along many lines, including things like the inequalities between employed and unemployed people, um, the, the inequalities in health are actually deepening. They're widening. We're going backwards. And if you think about, for instance, in the mid-1990s, the welfare reforms that we saw in Canada, in the US, the austerity measures we saw post-recession in the UK, uh, the US uh, almost didn't have to do anything austerity-wise because their welfare state is so rock bottom as it is. Uh, but in our own society, you know, the dismantling and, and restructuring of employment insurance, again, of social assistance, all of these kinds of policies have actually 
um, occurred at the same time, unsurprisingly, that these inequalities have been exacerbated. And in, in my uh, research group, we try to empirically give a sense of how policies affect health inequalities. And um, I always say to people, I really cannot give you a good empirical test of how policies have improved things because we don't have any policies <laughs> that have done that. We're going backwards. So all my studies basically say, here's how the policy change you made, which reduced benefits, which reduced eligibility criteria, um, you know, reduced coverage, et cetera, um, made things worse. And I can infer from that, that if you didn't do that and you went the other way, that things would get better. But I can't tell you that directly because, or tell you how much to do because, um, you know, we just don't have any living examples of that. I think the one thing I will say, though, is that, um, and, and maybe this is part of what you, you'll sort of want to go to um, next, but based on what colleagues have done in the U.S. to try to estimate what would make meaningful change, I don't think there's any conclusion to be had except that whatever policy changes and structural changes we make, they must be bold. Mm -hmm. we, we simply cannot tinker um, with, with, you know, um, slightly, you know, increasing social assistance or slightly modifying this or that. It really needs to be something that makes a large difference in the basic current form of the current social social stratification we see, but also how that stratification um, will carry forward to future generations. So one of the big issues and one of the reasons you don't see uh, any movement is because not only are the policies bad for the people experiencing them in real time, but they have intergenerational legacies. Uh, as do, by the way, the the kind of current environment that has made the very rich, very rich. Mm -hmm. That legacy carries forward to their uh, offspring as well. And so these social inequalities, this social stratification we see just keeps replicating itself. Yeah, when I'm watching these things, I always think the same thing is if, if, if we're not talking about and actually doing transferring capacity and resources, then we're not really talking about solving the problem. I mean, it, it I, you know, I've watched with furor a lot of the, uh, of the COVID responses, all of which are temporary by government, but also by the private sector. And I'm, you know, we're following Loblaws, for instance, which is now roll, undoing its, its temporary worker pay bonus because I guess the crisis is over. And I'm thinking to myself like, well, what, what are we even doing here? I, I mean, it's not, none of this is structural, but then I have a moment where I think have, maybe we've reached a critical juncture. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of the pandemic as a critical juncture. We didn't ask for it. We didn't want it. It did a lot of damage. It's been tragic. It's compounded tragedies, but 
maybe it's also a moment where we say, oh, we're going to do some things differently. We're going to make some structural changes. I mean, I'm curious if you've seen anything that indicates to you that there, there's an opportunity, but also maybe even some movement in, in changing something foundational so that we can address this now, but also, you know, future iterations of this. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is that my initial reaction is you, it may be that moment in time that you're talking about. It does feel like um, with the full force of the recognition and protests about anti-Black racism, with the all eyes on COVID and the inability for us to hide the kinds of COVID inequalities or health inequalities that often we just sort of um, turn away from when there are cardiovascular inequalities. This moment in time does give me some hope that we will be able to, to hold policymakers more accountable than we have in the past, politicians and policymakers. Um, the cynic in me says, come on, like mm -hmm. you know, this never actually happens and and um, this will pass and, and, you know, power will reassert itself or continue to assert itself the way it always does. The one thing is, though, I, I recently heard Angela Davis, who I deeply respect and admire, mm -hmm. say something to the effect of um, this feeling like it's a diff different moment in time. So I am extremely cautiously optimistic. Yeah, that's sort of how I'm feeling, too. And, and then, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about how just the other day we, we learned that British Columbia had its deadliest month ever for opioid deaths, you know, 170 in May. Mm. And we've been talking, I mean, I lived in British Columbia for a long time and I was, I was there uh, and tracked this story as it, as it developed. And there was, you know, all kinds of talk across different federal governments and different provincial governments about addressing this and how okay, there, were, there were plans or thinking about it. Now, and now we look at May and see that, uh, you know, 170, 170 suspected uh, toxicity deaths. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it really shatters our idea that we are on a, a sort of perpetual incline, you know, incline towards perfectibility, doesn't it? And, and I, I wonder at what point people just say, um, we need to look at solutions that we might otherwise consider. And, and when I'm cautiously optimistic, the thing I'm actually optimistic about is there'll be new ideas on the register that just wouldn't be there before that'll be considered. So when I think about economically, I think of maybe a basic income. When I think of of public health, I think maybe we, we're going to start talking about the need to legalize drugs, for instance, mm -hmm. because obviously what's happening in British Columbia is not working. Um, it, 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 when you're thinking about a, a sort of a COVID-related structural response, I mean, what comes to mind to you as, as the sorts of policies that we should be thinking about in order to, to address this stuff? Yeah, so... Um I think it's very true that we have to have policies on the table that we previously had dismissed. And the fact that CERB um, entered the conversation and got enacted so quickly 
makes me very skeptical of arguments that say, well, bold things are not politically feasible. Now, CERB is not perfect. It excludes um, many people. And uh, in fact, uh, a few things I've read uh, say that it's systematically excluded, uh, particularly pe black people who, because of the jobs they occupy, are not as eligible for CERB. Mm. Uh, but that aside, CERB is much more of a bold reaction to the pandemic, a, a more, uh, 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 you know, sort of a bolder response than we have in our arsenal of social policies at the time, at the, at the current moment, which is precisely why we had to, you know, create an emergency response. We, you know, it would be people decided that whatever you get for social assistance is simply inadequate. But it's kind of funny that we did decide that at the point in the pandemic, right. when we've been paying a pittance for social assistance for a long time. So if I think about what I would dream would be a policy agenda. I think there are a few things on the table. One is, um, before I say what what I the policies I would advocate for, I do think it's worth saying that it would be really important to have a really smart group of people, um, both who are scholars, who are active in community organizing and understand issues from a grassroots perspective, but just a really vibrant group of people who are empowered not just to forward recommendations, um, but that there's some accountability. For instance, you could say that there's a budget attached, a large budget mm -hmm. attached to a set of policy recommendations, and then these people hash out what those recommendations should be. I mean, this is on the fly. I'm thinking about this, but, um, you know, as opposed to me just telling you what I think it, and I have thought about this considerably and I study this stuff, but I do think it's important to have voices that are both scholarly and from communities who have done the organizing and the work um, to understand what people's lives look like so that people can hash that out. Um, together. And, and it, it may very, very well be a hashing out process, um, because often we think we know what's best and what's going on, both as scholars and as people in the community. And, and when we start to really look at the issues, it becomes clear that we really do need to give this some thought. So having said that, I would say that the first thing that this moment calls for is a bold reparations plan. I don't think you can move forward assuming that you are going to rectify the damage that you are seeing today that itself is a consequence of, you know, years and years and years of systematic oppression of particularly Black and Indigenous communities. Um, combined with years and years of a system that led to the kind of income inequality that we're seeing today. So in particular, reparations for indigenous and black people would be very high on my policy agenda. Um, I think that the next policy area that I would love to see tackled uh, is wealth inequality. 
Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's not enough to think of this as a single generational effort that basically we have to figure out if you wanted to resolve wealth inequality and inequality in the opportunities that led to the wealth inequality, what would you do? Well, in the U.S., um, there's been several proposals by colleagues and friends of mine like Derek Hamilton, like uh, Sandy Darity, who are economists, who have basically said we need some sort of uh, uh, baby bonds, for example, proposal where um, you take people who are in communities who um, have been marginalized you and 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 extend that maybe even to lower income folks, um, but particularly um, focused on, for instance, Black and Indigenous communities, and you effectively give a a stock amount when someone is born, that then grows as they age into adulthood, and then they can do what they want with that money. They can invest in education. They can invest in a down payment on a home. They can do all the things that people from rich families get to do with their money. And that gives them a leg up. I mean, if you if you think about Toronto, where I live in the city, I, I would be stunned uh, if very many people who live in the glitzy condos downtown did not have uh, help paying their down payment from their pa- from their parents or grandparents. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of par for the course and you don't you take it for granted and have help funding their education from the previous generation. And I think people who are marginalized in Canada need that same stock of wealth to be able to get that same opportunity. I don't think it'll be enough even to equalize income. You're going to have to go to wealth because it's the wealth that's generating the income. It's not the reverse. People's income is not what's giving them wealth. They're Mm -hmm. inheriting wealth from prior generations. And when they inherit that wealth, they're able to get a leg up, get the education, get the lifestyle that generates both income and more wealth. So I think that's a huge deal. I think the third thing for me falls in this category of income inequality. And I think there's two things to be said. One is that we need to raise the floor. We need to raise it in a few ways. I think there's no question that social assistance needs to be infinitely more generous, infinitely more generous, whether that takes the shape of basic income or not. Um, I'm sort of sort of not not sort of wed to to basic income. I think the basic idea is that um, at the low end of the economic spectrum, we need we need more money going to people. Um, and part of that is a safety net approach with social assistance being more generous. We also need better paying high quality jobs. Yeah. We, we shouldn't be waiting till someone needs social assistance. We should be giving them um, jobs that pay well and have security and have good quality uh, uh, work conditions and so on. And, and improving their their um, income and their experiences of daily work um, for, for the for the working population. So I, I strongly believe that has to be a very big part of the equation. Job security and income security and, and quality uh, uh, jobs. 
the the last part of that bundle of income inequality, I think you cannot do this without doing something about how much incomes and wealth are rising at the top. If income and wealth continues to rise at the top, it's impossible to imagine that um, society won't change in ways that actually have deep implications for people at the bottom end of the spectrum. So things often get more expensive. The kinds of things that you need to live a decent life, like today, we, you, you really cannot do without a smartphone mm-hmm. or broadband or anything else. Um, those kinds of things tend to sort of grow in number. They tend to get more expensive. And so at the top, the kinds of um, opportunity hoarding, um, change to our basic ways of living that are sort of unfolded on the rest of us really matter. So I don't think we can think about equality and wellness for marginalized people without considering what's happening at the very top. Yeah, I just, I agree with all that. I have not, I have nothing to add, but I agree. I mean, and, and, you know, it, it strikes me as, I remember something I, I learned in, in undergrad reading Ellen Wood, maybe my master's and, you know, this, this just one simple phrase that has, has stuck with me for a long time. Uh, it's political and, and it seems so, so trite maybe, but when, but when you start to apply it, you realize that it's true that, you know, thinking, Oh, public health is political, right. You know, diseases, uh, outcomes are political. Pandemics are political. And by which we mean that they're bound up in power relations and, and resource relations, right? And I, I, I wonder, I mean, listening to you lay out that program and agreeing with it, I think to myself, you know, how do, how do we communicate to people that, that this stuff is necessary because all of the things that we think of as incidental or the the result of personal choice and personal responsibility and so on and so forth i mean so many of them are actually bound up in political systems in which people are marginalized or don't have power that that, it, that is it is fundamentally political and i i sort of think that the pandemic is one of those moments where we can try to get that message out uh, part of the reason i wanted to do the, this episode this way is to try to remind people that public health is political yeah it's not yeah um, yeah, uh, you know, I have mixed feelings. Um, on the one hand, I think efforts like yours go a long way to making sure, again, that the facts about the the deep ways in which public health is political uh, and our lives are political, it, it goes a long way. I think I think having the public not be able to say this information isn't out there, getting out these messages and unequal equivocal terms is a really, really big deal. Um, And my hope is that it makes people think twice about how they vote, whether they get involved in um, efforts that um, help the circumstances of marginalized people. So recently, of course, there's been hugely important um, protests uh, against anti-black racism and in particular systemic racism in policing. There's been smaller protests about um, whether there should be a moratorium on people having to pay rent. 
uh, during a, a period where where people are losing their income and their jobs. And so having messages like this, I think, goes a long way. And on the other hand, part of my worry is that we cannot um, count on people to be enlightened and change their minds in order to affect change. Mm. And that's because it's partly that people who who don't people don't realize or acknowledge that um, public health really is political and it's not just uh, or even mostly about how you behave, that those behaviors themselves are constrained by your circumstances. And um, when I think about that, I think, okay, well, who are the people who really fight back and push back against this and think that this is deeply individualized? Well, maybe there's a segment who has some sort of libertarian notion um, and, and really does just believe this to their core. But I think what a lot of the economics, social psychology, and, psychology, and sorry, sociological literature suggest is that this kind of thing happens, this kind of ideology and getting that kind of ideology of individualism across happens because there's actually utility for it amongst people who hold current political power and economic power. So the people who are benefiting from the current system, uh, I worry, are very unlikely to want to change this system and may be uh, precisely the people who are putting these narratives out because they are actually really useful for them. They, they uh, you know, make this stuff up and they do it in a way that allows their narrative to be perpetuated about how effectively people who get diseases aren't behaving well. Right. Uh, you know, I've seen it during COVID. There's been some articles out there about the fact that, well, black people aren't getting it because they're not putting on masks and they're not washing their hands. And it just, you know, feeds into all of these incredibly racist tropes. And the tropes are there not just um, symbolically or because people are, are stupid and crazy, but things like that actually really help people in power stay in power and hoard resources because they allow a proliferation of this idea that people who get sick deserve to get sick and that we want to keep things the way they are. Yeah, I, I think, and that's why I, I look to those who are organizing and those who are taking to the streets and those who are lobbying and donating and so on and so forth, who are who might say, well, we need to change minds, and I, I agree that we need to change minds, but we need to organize. I mean, we need, there's a broader effort to uh, lay both the sort of foundation of, of, of the ideas and the reasons for these things, but also the hard work of, of just organizing for them because this stuff isn't going to be noblesse oblige driven. Right? Just, and if we rely on that, it's just never going to happen, yeah. at least not adequately, right? I mean, yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, you know, we got to sort of take it. And that's why I hope that the moment, presents opportunities to do this work because people are kind of thinking about it a little on some sense a little differently but politicians especially and and you know hopefully that gets seized but i mean i guess cautiously optimistic is the best way to put it <laughs> I'm right there with you with a the cautious optimism and i do hope that it gets seized i hope in particular 
that some of the major leftist organizations um, and and leftist think tanks that often have, you know, they have a history of neglecting issues around race will understand that those are a critically important part of what the uh, uh, sort of left political um, authorities in Canada should really be acknowledging and fighting for and fighting against. And um, that what little sort of power and resources we have around this stuff will get sort of, uh, you know, really, really kind of front and center uh, in that in that agenda. And I totally agree with you. I think the people who are taking to the streets are doing um, the yeoman's work on this. This is this stuff is almost entirely driven one way or another by social movements. Well, I can't think of a better note on which to end. That that brings us to time. But first of all, thank you very much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it was my pleasure. And to everyone listening, thank you, as always, for listening. I hope um, this has given you a chance to think about some uh, some of the moments that we're, we're experiencing a little in different ways. And if you know, if you're thinking of takeaways, I think one of them is that this stuff is political and fixing it takes work and fixing it takes structural change. And, and I'll just leave it right there for now. And, and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you.